His name is Heston Blumenthal. He's one of the most inquisitive and creative chefs on the planet. And his restaurant, The Fat Duck, is 25 years old. And to celebrate, we're doing a series of special podcasts where Heston is revealing some of the secrets and stories behind the classic dishes of The Fat Duck, but also some of the new creations that are being shown as part of this anniversary series of menus. Last week, Heston took us inside the amazing forest experience that is the quail jelly. Now we're going deep inside another dish. Hello, Heston. How are you doing? I'm very good, Jay. How are you? Thank you for asking. I'm good. I'm good. I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying our, our step through the, the depths. I, I, you know, I've been around you for, goodness knows, 12, 14, 13 years now, and I don't know half of this stuff, even though I've been filming in the duck for many, many years. I should also say we're also joined by James, our fat duck producer, as always, to make sure that we've got all the facts at our fingertips. Hello, James. Hello, gentlemen. So difficult listening because you just get so hungry to go off and eat a Mars bar or something afterwards. <laughs> Heston, where are we going today then? Because last week we were in the forest surrounded by enveloped in dry ice and beautiful musky smells. What are we up to today? So today we're going to visit the world of crab ice cream. Which in itself sounds the most wonderfully intriguing dish. What do we get? What would appear in front of me on the table? Okay, so you're imagine... Imagine, dear listeners, you're sitting at the table and the food is served, this dish is served on a plate, crab ice cream, crab risotto. So on the plate is a a circle of crab risotto with little green strips, which are strips of rocket, because they give a nice peppery note. And then draped over the crab risotto is an incredibly thin veil of passion fruit jelly. And then sitting on top of that, is a crab ice cream, a rocher of crab ice cream. And then there's a cassonade, which is basically like uh, grains of dried red pepper and a red, red pepper, super concentrated little drizzles of red pepper juice. Well, I can see that with my mind now, and it sounds absolutely remarkable. How on earth did you get this idea? Where did this come from? Well, my, I, for this, I'd have to, I have to zoom back to my childhood and when I was oh, probably between five and eight years old I lived in London with my parents and my sister and we lived in a basement flat my grandmother lived above and every Saturday my grandmother would take my sister and I to Church Street Market which is sort of off the Edgware Road and it in those days I'm going to sound, you're going to feel my age now it was like Steptoe and Son so People that seem really old, yeah, selling bric-a-brac off the back of horse-drawn carts. Really? I mean, wow. You're not I, that old. <laughs> I, I know, it does. It seems like a, it, my memory should be in black and white, doesn't it? You know, at that age, the last thing you wanted to do was be dragged around a, what, what any child would probably think of as a junk market. My grandmother and her best friend loved it. But the carrot that got us to endure that experience was that on the way back, we would pass Regent Snack Bar and it was a little shop with a sort of Art Deco frontage. So uh, sort of red and yellow square panels with chrome framework around them. Three windows, two flat ones, and in the middle was sort of a curved window that you could buy the ice cream from. And then there was a door and above the door was a big plastic ice cream cone. And you know, when you're small, everything seems big. So we can look up at this towering ice cream cone above the door which just it was just put all the excitement on steroids boosted everything and we go in there 
and there were a couple of guys in white coats. There were, it was Sicilian owned, and there were tubs of ice cream. There weren't that many. I remember there was vanilla and strawberry and chocolate and pistachio and coffee. There were maybe eight or ten flavors, and then you had a choice that you could put them in a cone or put them in a in a tub, but we weren't allowed to eat them until we got home. So they were put in a tub with a wooden spoon and a brown paper bag, and they were spread into the tub with these Sicilian sort of aluminium, like spades, where they'd, they'd scoop the ice cream and scrape them into the tub. And I remember walking. That walk was less than 10 minutes home, but it seemed like a week. Every step, I could hear the paper bag rustling. And I, and, and it melting, right? You must have been freaking out about well, it melting. Yeah, well, it... Yeah, I don't actually, fun enough, I don't remember that, but I do remember the, the feeling of the cold, of my hands holding the bag, like a, yeah, like a, like some crown jewels on a pillow. And, um, and so that was, unknowingly, that was my first food experience of having to work for my reward. Because I was dragged around this market, didn't want to go. The feeling of, I've earned this. I didn't realise how powerful it was. And that was actually to, 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 to influence a lot of my cooking later on in life and my beliefs. I think our, there's hormones which are, are, generate our emotions, our emotions called reward hormones. And when you work for something, it has, seems to have more value than if, you just, if, if you've, you know, you've come by it, let's say. This is hormonally based, these kind of feelings. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. There is so much more satisfaction if you've earned work for something but I didn't realise that was biologically programmed totally. in It's us. called our endocrine system. And nearly 100%, not quite, of all our hormones are in our gut. They might be triggered off by the brain or triggered off by the gut triggering the brain, but they're in our gut. And so that's so connected to food. And there's an argument, an evolutionary argument to, 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 to say that... Uh, it's, the, it's this endocrine system, our hormonal system, that drove us to find food and drove us to grow food and drove us to preserve food. Um, and food as a reward is a very, very powerful tool. Um, and so I had this obsession with ice cream and I remember, I remember there, was a, there was something about that vanilla ice cream that I seem to remember. Then I read that there was an old Sicilian technique of putting a few coffee beans in the vanilla ice cream. So I started to do that at the duck. I later found out that, in fact, because I met the guy, one of the guys that had the shop who went on to have a hotel in Chiswick High Road afterwards, and I filmed in there, and he reminded me that it was a spoonful of vanilla and a spoonful of coffee, and it was the mixture of the two. That, that, so I, I spent a lot of time chasing, chasing this memory, not quite sure what it actually was. So just part that bit of the story to one side for a minute. Now, when I went to the restaurant in France, it inspired me to, to cook. So I had this down the rabbit hole, multi-sensory experience. I then got obsessed with the great chefs of France and I started to either bought, I got for my birthday some, or Christmas, you know, French chefs cookbooks of which I had to, if, I, if they weren't in English, I had to translate them with a French-English dictionary. <clears throat> Quite arduous, but maybe a dog with a bone, I don't know. And I noticed that you could have 20 chefs' cookbooks, all with vanilla ice cream recipes, and 
they would almost never have the same ingredients and the same ratio of ingredients. So some chefs would use single cream, some double cream, some mascarpone, some egg yolks, some whole eggs, some plain sugar, some demerara sugar, some would use honey. <clears throat> and I was thinking, well, why do they use these different ingredients in different ratios? Because they know something I don't. Or is that just what they've been told? Then I came across a book um, by a guy called Robin Weir. He's amazing. He's, he's forgotten more about ice cream than I could possibly know. In the back of this book, it's, it was called Isis, there's a little kind of lexicon, glossary, which told you some of the basic science in ice cream making. So if you imagine when you put water in, if water in a freezer, you just get a solid lump of ice. When you start putting solid matter in there, like proteins or sugars and stuff, it changes the texture. Then when you mix it while it's freezing, it also changes the texture. It can make it smooth. So the level of fat and the level of something called MSNF, which is milk, solids, non-fat. So if you have cream, uh, double cream might have something like 30% MSNF, which is milk, solids, but not for the fatty ones. So cream might have X percent fat but it's got other sort of proteins and starches and stuff in it which is solid stuff and that's really important in terms of the way that it affects the ice cream texture and flavor so i started looking more closely at that and also in robin's book i saw a recipe sicilian recipe funny enough for parmesan ice cream i thought what that's weird and i did that alice in wonderland talking to herself thing you know big me mini me that's a bit strange, Heston. Hmm, yeah, but why should it be strange? Oh, I don't know, I suppose, because ice cream's normally sweet, isn't it? Yeah, maybe, I don't know. And then I started, also at the same time, I was aware that Italian cooking was, and is one of the most rigid, cast-in, set-in-stone cooking cultures. So if you're in Italy, if you're Italian, you would never serve spaghetti with a ragu bolognese. It's just wrong. Why? Well because spaghetti comes about 300 miles south from, from where of Bologna, where the sauce was, was invented. So you have fettuccine or tagliatelle with spaghetti, and you'd never put garlic in it. That was a bit of a shock when I discovered that. You just, it's, it's wrong. Why? It's just wrong. I don't believe food is right or wrong. It's not better and best. It's just what you like. I know what you mean in Italy, though. Oh, you, I, you ask for, for a cappuccino at lunchtime, you'd be kicked out. Why? They don't know. And then they'll say, well, because, you know, because you're having milk or cream. But yes, but you can order a tiramisu for dessert. That's OK. And that's got coffee. It might have coffee in it. Ah, that's different. <laughs> you're not going to win that argument. No, but that's also part of the beauty of Italian cooking. So seeing a Sicilian ice cream recipe, maybe Parmesan, seemed to me it was such a massive oxymoron or paradox that one of the most set in stone food cultures had a recipe in from 1800-odd, this recipe was dated for Parmesan ice cream. So I also then started to play with the rigidity of Italian cooking. When I then discovered that Victorians also had lots of recipes for savoury ices, they called them. Did they really? Yeah, like asparagus, for example, and carrot. Oh, that's very vogue now, isn't it? Asparagus ice cream for health benefits and stuff. But I didn't realise it was that old. Yeah, but then it was... It, it, what happened was it fell out of... It just fell out of fashion. So maybe several generations later, if they, if they 
if but when no several generations are not eating ice creams made with savory ingredients then when they were presented with them, we think, oh, this is a bit weird. Would they, would they have sweetness that. in them, like the Parmesan or the asparagus? Was it yeah, sweet? Yeah, they would have sweetness in them. And that, in fact, was one of the challenges for me because I was playing around with savoury ices and I found that when the sugar level was, was over a certain concentration, it became too confusing. I, got, I understand, yeah. It was, so the challenge was how to, to, how to create a sort of savoury ice cream without a lot of sugar. Mm. The problem is sugar is a real sort of safety net for the texture. If you don't want your icing to be all grainy, just increase the sugar a bit. If you increase it too much, it becomes elastic. It becomes, because it changes the freezing temperature of the, of, the, of the liquid. So the sweeter the ice cream, the softer it is. So by reducing the ice cream, you're getting close to ice crystals forming. So you lose the smoothness of the ice cream. So that was one of the challenges which I've just spent a lot of time and time and effort on researching, trying to continually reduce the sugar levels and make and, 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 and replace them with things like skim milk powder. So your skim milk powder is 97% milk solids non-fat. So it doesn't have the fat or sweetness. So you can mm, add right. a bit of milk powder, which and ice cream companies do this now. And um, so Playing around with this, I thought another thing was that uh, in Italy, just like cappuccino at lunchtime, if you ask for parmesan on a seafood or pasta dish, if you ask for parmesan on a pasta or rice dish which contains seafood, you might also get thrown out or ignored <laughs> or they just won't understand you. That's why I'm not welcome in Italy at all, basically. You just, you just don't do it. However, there's if you think about... Um, you think about certain dishes uh, with um, anchovies. P pizza could have anchovies and parmesan on a pizza. Well, there's fish and cheese and there's bread. And what's the difference? Pasta and bread. I mean, they're, they're both they're both made from a base of flour and water. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not a million miles away. So when I started looking at this, parmesan has a lot of umami. Um, the umami taste, a lot of it in parmesan, a lot of it in tomatoes, a lot of it in anchovies. There's a lot of it in things like crab as well. So certain seafood and mackerel. So in fact, there's a, there's a justifiable, it doesn't have to be justifiable, justifiable is if you like it or not. However, it just works. It works for a lot of people with certain types of seafood. So there is another opportunity to challenge the um, kind of biblical wisdom and the, the, the sort of kitchen law of Italian traditional food culture. So I made a crab risotto with, finished with some parmesan and lots of other ingredients in it. The passion fruit really was there for the for acidity. And, and actually, you know, you have crab and grapefruit. And, um, salad is quite traditional. So that brings that soft fruitiness and, and, the, and some fresh acidity to the dish. So then I thought, I wanted to play around. We've made many savoury ice creams, so I tried crab. So we made a crab stock and then uh, made another crab stock with that crab stock, so it was a bit more intense, and then reduced it a bit more and finished it with a little bit of skim milk powder. There was no sugar, and I managed to get the solids up enough to have a smooth ice cream. So I, what I wanted to do is play around with this crab in, in several different textures. So you've got the crab stock in the risotto, you've got the fresh crab meat in the risotto, and then you've got this crab ice cream. 
Um, and it was cut with this delicate acidity from the passion fruit and the bitterness from the red peppers. And what I found, remember, I think people don't bat an eyelid, not much less now than they did then by just hearing the term crab ice cream. In those days, imagine we're talking about late 90s. So it was, it was so arresting for some people. Some people, it just sent them down a wonderful rabbit hole. And the other, other people, it was just too much to, to, you know, what are you trying to do to me? And then I realised that if I called it frozen crab bisque, people could say, ah, I get it now. If I think about it as a frozen crab mousse or frozen crab parfait, then it doesn't sound so strange. That's amazing, though, isn't it? Just the power of a word to, to, to nudge how people think about their food. So this is, now we're coming into the key thing, because this dish was such a pivotal dish in my career, because this led to um, one of the first papers I did with a guy called Martin Yeomans, Sussex University. He picked up on it and we did the experiment with smoked salmon, mousse so make a smoked salmon parfait of mousse frozen and now serve it to people but serve it and call with some people call it smoked salmon ice cream and others call it frozen smoked salmon mousse oh great when it was called smoked salmon ice cream it was perceived to be 10 to 20 percent saltier just by changing the name because when that's, i say that's a crazy it, shift that's saying our brains, just the word, can make something 20% saltier in our, in our heads, our mouths. This is the beautiful value of memory. So ice cream sets you into a context. A bit like, you know, when you say restaurant, you, have a, you, you will naturally, it's almost unconsciously, have a predetermined expectation of what a restaurant should be like when you go to a restaurant. And the same thing, we grew up with ice cream being sweet. It's just like in last week's, you smelt the vanilla and the vanilla smelt sweet, but it tasted, there's nothing sweet about it. It was bitter. It's the same thing. So that, that was when the light bulb came on. Late 90s, I thought, oh my God, just by changing the name, you could change the taste and flavor and your relationship with a dish. And then that was just the tip of the iceberg. And that is when I realized that eating and cooking is a multi-sensory experience. I didn't know at the time that even the, the neuroscience world, worldwide, hadn't cottoned onto this yet. They were looking at cross modalities, so how one sense can affect the other, but you can't separate them. You might have one more dominant sense, but they're all involved, all of the senses. And Unknowing, uh, unknowingly, this influenced neuroscience research. There was a chef in a little pokey restaurant in a sleepy village in England who was doing this stuff just through being a big kid and asking questions. So that really was the dish that I think changed, it changed everything at, uh, at that time. That was a light bulb moment. So then I started from there trying everything, even the shape of the font, the shape of the letters and the colours of the letters and the sounds you're listening to. And maybe the person opposite you has got a particular coloured T-shirt or they've got some jewellery that's really shiny or there's a shiny metal bowl on the table or, you know, the, the, the tabletop's stone. So when you did cutlery on it, it makes a clanging noise. All of these massively influence the perception of the food that you're eating and interacting with. 
And it's amazing so when you talk when, when you talk about this as well, even down to what you were just saying about about your perception of where you're going and, and the thought of what you're about to have can change it. So maybe you're going to a restaurant where you have a preconception. The food could change, you know, the taste could change by twenty percent, maybe even more, just by thinking about it slightly differently. It's like you've said before about drinking nice wine in a styrofoam cup in the you know, in a in a service station car park rather than on a, a beach in Italy is gonna exactly. change the wine. It's like one of the classic things. If you're, if you're, uh, you like your wine, I, I use the example of going to the Loire Valley. Not that everyone goes to the Loire Valley for a weekend, but you can just use your imagination. Not anymore, guys. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> but you're you're sitting by the uh, by the river, and the the grass is the green grass is just flowing beautifully, like a wave in the soft warm breeze. And you've got the, the sunlight flickering little diamonds off the surface of the water. And you're, you've got your table, you order some oysters. It's glisteningly fresh. Plate of oysters on ice gets put on the little stand. And then there's the ice bucket and the muscadet comes along. It's made just down the road. And pop goes the cork and it goes into the ice bucket. And you can hear the chink of the ice cubes. And then you pour the wine and it's the sun's flickering and reflecting through the wine glass. And you, it's a weekend off. Oh my God. And you're with your friends or your loved ones or... And you sip the wine and you think, I've never tasted muscadet like this before in my life. This is incredible. So what do you do? You buy 17 cases of it, <laughs> strap it to your car, take it back home, and you can't wait to impress your friends or your boss or whatever. Um, you've discovered a muscadet unlike any other muscadet that's ever ha happened before, that's ever been made before or you've ever experienced. And you want to share it with people. And then you pop the cork and you pour it. It's not the same wine. And then people say, well, you know, the wine didn't travel. Well, the wine traveled, but you haven't brought the Loire Valley in your weekend break and you haven't brought the sun on the, on the river and, you know, all of that stuff. So it's food and eating is so um, contextually driven and it's, it roots us in memory, in moment, through the senses. And... That was really this whole world opened up to me and I've been working on it and discovering things around it ever since. And it's still at the heart of every single thing I do is, you know, my in the duck, for example, this year, one of my ambitions. Oh, I'm going to try and get there is to give, you know, have you, you seen Ratatouille? Yeah, fantastic film. That moment in the end is brilliant. It's actually possibly the most accurate gastronomic film. And my friend really? was consulting for it, Thomas Keller, it was his ratatouille at the end. But it's very, apart from rats in the kitchen, but the actual story and the actual kitchen layout and stuff, it's very accurate. But there's that moment in the end when the food critic eats that ratatouille and does a sort of back to the future moment. He's transported... Uh, at at light speed off faster than the speed of light, which I think memory can travel faster than the speed of light. By the way, but that's another podcast down the road. Um, to his childhood, it's like the Proustian moment with the Madeleines. If I could get that, and we'll touch on this more when we do Sound of the Sea, because that was like the crab ice cream. This is coming in a later podcast. Was one of the dishes that changed changed everything later further down the line. So that moment where you can use the context around the dish, so the dish or the thing with the dish, just like in last week's, there's the forest scene, that sets us up to fall down that rabbit hole of context. So we're there, we're in there. And we will have our own memory of being in the woods. 
that hopefully we can relate to. So if you can then access that and then touch through the food and the connection the diner has with the food, you could create a ratatouille moment. One moment for one, for one person on every table. It would be, an, that would be for me the holy grail, which I think is, I'm aiming for this year. I think you do it as well. I mean, you're aiming for it, but I know I've seen people encountering this and the fact that you think about any other dining experience you go for. Yeah, there's wonderful dining experiences out there, but they are a singular dining experience where, you know, we've only spent, you know, a few podcasts talking about the different things, but you've already taken us from, you know, the power of a, a, a childhood ice cream shop to the forest floor back and, you know, to nitrogen, you know, nitrogen flavored lime and green tea mousses. I mean, the excitement of a theme park for your mouth, all this within one dining experience. And we're not even half the way through it yet, are we? No. And in fact, just to finish off on the crab ice cream, where we've gone to with that now is that the crab risotto has sort of become, I mean, we will be putting it back on uh, intermittently over the course of this year because it's celebrating, you know, 25 years. But in fact, the crab ice cream is such a beautiful thing that we've more context driven now than we were 20 years ago. And this is stuff I've done on with TV shows, you know, once you, whether it's afternoon tea or picnic or packed lunch or a coffee break or Christmas or a birthday party or Easter. They're food-centric moments that most of us can relate to. We can relate to them as a group. We can share the same food-centric memory. However, the great thing is we can also personalise it because we have our own relationship with it. And then you can, at the same time, share. So it's sort of the, the, best, the best of both worlds. So what we've done there is that there's a chapter where uh, this is in... in, in in one of the uh, the next iteration of this menu in, a, in probably a month or two's time maximum, where you will be walking through a day. It's a day's holiday. So you wake up, you have breakfast. Then you go to the beach. After the beach is the walk in the woods, and there's some other things later that you would possibly do in, the, in that sort of time of day. But at the beach, there's also the opportunity, the sound of the sea is coming up, but in addition to the sound of the sea is the ice cream van. So you have the ice cream by the seaside and Mr. Whippy was one of the, you know, is one that many people can connect with. So we put this crab ice cream with the little bit of red pepper juice, with the passion fruit puree that was in the iteration of a jelly before, and a flake, looks like a flake, but it's actually a piece of bitter chocolate. Oh, fantastic. In a cone. <laughs> so you've got the texture of Mr. Whippy. So there's something really wonderful that happens in you. I'm eating a crab ice cream and I know it tastes of crab, but there's something very 99 and flake about this as well. It's got a great balance to it. What a joy. This is brilliant. And do um, you can see images from this as well. We're going to be popping on the Instagram, uh, Heston's podcast Instagram. We'll be putting up some great images that have been taken of these dishes recently. So you can you can have a look and eat with your eyes as well as just your ears on this. But um, but yeah, this is just such a, a perfect illustration, I think, of the playful nature of the food that you make as well. The incredible depth of research below it and, and in, you know, in all the all the thoughts and questions you've had along the way. But the ultimate end product is something that's delicious and just utterly delightful and fun. And I think it's um, it's really wonderful to hear you step us through it. Thank you, Aston. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, Jay. All that's left to say for this podcast, but do join us next week for more deep dives inside some of the incredible creations from Heston's world uh, is thank you and goodbye, Heston. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye, Jay.